Well, uh, today was an interesting day. Uh, last night we had a council meeting and, um, and it was a bunch of folks showed up. It was supposed to be a uh, planning session and uh, everyone came forward for SB 54 and they finally got it on the agenda. So we'll get to vote on it, which is cool. Um, and I'd asked the folks that had come, I told them, I said, look, it's, it's on the agenda. Can we not take the meeting, make it long? They still wanted to speak, so they did. And uh, so the meeting went kind of late. We were supposed to get out of there early. It went kind of late. And afterwards, a uh, dear friend um, who is very involved in, in uh, city concerns, um, I, I said, let's go out to dinner. I have a real heart for him. I, I don't think he knows the Lord as a Savior. And so we went out to dinner and uh, sat until, gosh, almost midnight and uh, shared the gospel. Um, and it wasn't until the very end of our conversation that I even used scripture. And some of you are going, trust me, it works out. Um, knowing their profession and their trade and going through their involvement in the city, I addressed, uh, you know, as we've covered on our American Legacy series, Aristotle with the the uh, or Socrates, excuse me, the the doing virtues and the thinking virtues, and I went through first party, second party, third party purchase, and went through uh, what is money. It's the representation of your contribution to society. And I shared the story about the young kid in front of the uh, Starbucks asking for money, and I said, "I'll give you money if you can tell me what it is." And he says, "It's a thing you need to buy stuff with." I said, "No, it's the it's a representation of the contribution you make to society." And he's like, "Oh," and as I started to share this and all these concepts their response was, I'm not a real religious man. I, I'm, not, I'm not a person of faith. I said, yes, you are. Yes, you are. They said, really? And I said, yeah. And they said, how so? And I said, you're at every council meeting. You're very involved in the business of the city. You're, you, you do business in the city. And if you were to take your business elsewhere and to move to another state, you and your family would make far more money than you're making here. It's, it's a headache to try to get anything passed in our city. And and he, he nodded, yes, my father's been here since 1967, all these things. It was a fascinating conversation. I said to him, I said, the reason why you are um, a, a man of faith, you don't really realize it. And I went through the Protestant Reformation and how this idea of the Geneva Bible with the commentaries on the side and all those things. I said to the Protestants, work became worship. It was an act of worship. Because you're, for wealth to be created, two people have to benefit and you create a community. And you're basically, when you're involved in the city, you're planting trees of whose shade you'll never see, and you're preparing it for a future. And that's why you're doing what you're doing is you have a vested interest in the welfare and the, and the, and the concern of the citizens of this community for generations to come. And, and that's what you're committed to. And, and they start getting like deeply affected, touched. And I said, uh, you're also an honest man. You tell the truth. You don't lie. You, you do things on a handshake. Yes. I said, there's not social justice, there's just justice. Social justice is when a majority of people decide this is going to be something important to us. And then, But to God, there isn't social justice, there's just justice. And there's not your truth and my truth, there's just truth. And the, there are 10 commandments, not suggestions. And we're, the, the cross of Christ, I, as the Apostle Paul's, we're going to see in 1 Corinthians, he went through all the divisions in the church in Corinth. And this is a church that's struggling to survive uh, they're getting drunk at the communion table. Uh, they're, they're, you're going to see as we go through these letters that a man is sleeping with his father's wife. Um, they're in a city where there's a thousand temple prostitutes that come down and ply their trade. And they're not just prostitutes that work a circuit. These are 
wives and daughters of people that live in the city. So this city is inundated with sexual dysfunction and just a mess. And, and the whole culture is just absolutely tragic. And the church is now no longer a counterculture. It's, it's becoming a subculture and they're trying to be relevant. And the sin has creeped in and you can't tell the difference between the church and the culture. Sound familiar? So I, I, I said to this man, I said, um, you know, you tell the truth because it's an absolute and truth is truth. It doesn't matter whether you believe it or you don't believe it. It's always going to be true. And I took my keys and I dropped them. I said, that's the law of gravity. It doesn't matter if you believe it or you don't believe it. Two plus two is four. It doesn't matter if you feel like it should be three. Your structures will all fall apart if you follow math that two plus two is three. And all of these things. And then I came down to it and I said, and the one thing that separates you from a really deep abiding relationship with this God that has guided your life and inspired you and moved you that you're touched by tonight is your sin. You just missed the mark. And it was there that the tenderness of the gospel came forward. And it was really such a lovely night that was effortless in relation to be all things to all men that you might win some. That conversation would have never, let me, let me make this very clear. That conversation would have never have taken place had I not been a council member. And so for those who say politics is dirty, we don't engage in politics, this is what's so profound about about this this epistle that Paul writes to the church at Corinth. This is a city that is gone. It makes California look like Victoria, England. Okay? This city is ruined. It's vile. Any depiction or statement of a Corinthian is always in a derogatory uh, form. If it's a Corinthian woman, she's a prostitute, a Corinth woman. And, and any, you know, it's, it, it's, it's a stigma that stays throughout the Roman Empire. And so we went through this, and Paul is saying, look, the entire church is arguing, which is fascinating, because instead of engaging the culture, we pick fly poop out of pepper. Remember our conversation last week, or my monologue? It wasn't really good. Well, we do at the end. But this idea that, I'm of Apollos. Well, I'm of Cephas. Well, I'm Reformed. Well, I'm, I'm Arminian. Well, I'm a Biblicist. Well, I'm, I'm pre-trib. Well, I'm post-trib. Well, I'm, and, and we spend all this time, and, and listen, theology is important. Don't get me wrong, but not at the expense of engaging the culture. We use it as an excuse to avoid the culture, and we even take our eschatology, our study of the end times, and we make it such that we don't have to worry about the future because Jesus is coming, and all we're doing is polishing brass on the Titanic because the rapture is going to come, and we don't have to engage culture. It's going to go to hell in a handbag, and then he's going to take us home. Praise the Lord. Let's just stay in the little confines of our church and not change Corinth. Are you tracking me so far? And so they were saying, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Paul. Some would say, I'm of Jesus. And they would take all these different positions. And then Paul comes in and says, look, I don't even know if I baptized any of you. Uh, and and this, this whole thing, I, I don't want to know anything among you except for this. This is the only division. There, there's, you have divided it in every camp possible. Let me just make the division clear for us and for this community. Uh, Jesus Christ and him crucified. What does the cross of Christ look like in government? What does the cross of Christ look like in education? What does the cross of Christ look like in arts and entertainment? What does the cross of Christ look like in media? What does the cross of Christ look like in our families? It is supposed to revolutionize the world. 
This gospel that we're, we're saved by the death, burial, burial, and resurrection of Christ, that we, we truncate and make the gospel myopic, that we believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that we believe in our heart, confess with our tongue, Jesus is Lord, we will be saved to the glory of the Father. We've been saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. If anyone wants to receive Christ, please raise your hand. And as a minister, we think we have accomplished the gospel. But nowhere in the scriptures is the gospel personal. He even says in the Sermon on the Mount, disciple the nations, borders with commitments and covenants and compacts. You change culture by ideology. I don't want to know anything among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. What does the crucified life look like? Dead to ourselves, alive to Christ. As the Apostle Paul would say, it's uh, no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. To will and to do of his good pleasure. Okay, everybody clear on last week's study? Any questions on that? So the dividing thing is, has nothing to do with our, our socioeconomic position, our ethnicity, our sexuality, our just fill in the blank. We want to divide everybody into segments. God says, there's just one segment. Jesus Christ and him crucified. Where are you on that? Are you, are you crucified with him? Or have you rejected his gift of salvation? Because that means it's the crucified life in its entirety. It affects the way you interact with your family. It affects the way you do business. It affects the way that you govern. It affects everything. But the church wants to make it about this. And if we can get people doing this and put butts in the seats, buildings, budgets, and baptisms, we consider ourselves successful. Tonight, we're going to see that the Apostle Paul absolutely rejects that. Now, before we get into it, one of the things I want to share with you in relation to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, is simply this. Uh, there's going to be a passage in there that we covered last week where the Apostle Paul laid it out, and we're going to find it in verse 5. He says that you stand in the, not in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And he goes on to say, I determine not to know anything among you save for Jesus Christ and him crucified. Okay? So at this point in Paul's journey... He's entered, into, um, he's entered into Europe, and, and his reception into the European continent, now he has just now entered into the European continent, this is Corinth, he's entered into the European continent, which is going to transform the world, and, and the Protestant Reformation is going to go over the Atlantic, and we're going to create this nation that, unbelievable. So, as it's traveling through Europe, and it comes into the European continent, the reception was not very pleasant for the Apostle Paul. The first thing he does, and you can follow this in the book of Acts, is he comes in and he's imprisoned in Philippi. So Paul never called ahead to see what the hotels were like. He called to see what the prisons were like. He was kicked through the streets like a soccer ball, either a revival or a, a, a riot wherever he went. So he's imprisoned in Philippi. He's smuggled out of Thessalonica, and he's driven out of Berea. Kicked, I should say. Driven, kicked, and beaten out of Berea. And when he reaches Athens, he started to argue at the Areopagus um, uh, on the basis of their agnosticism. You have the temple to many gods. I want to speak to you about to the, regarding the temple of the unknown God. We don't have any recorded uh, success of that sermon. Uh, we don't know of a church planted in Athens. We don't know of a convert in Athens. And so all of this takes place. And after he has gone from, uh, uh, from Philippi to Thessalonica to Berea, then to Athens, now he comes into Corinth, or I should say at this point he's in Ephesus writing the letter uh, to the Philippians, but he's reflecting, or excuse me, the Corinthians, but he's reflecting back on the time that he had there. 
And when he went to Corinth, we're going to see exactly what it was like for him. When he went to Corinth, he was leaving Athens, came to Corinth, and it was awful for him. And with that, let's take a look at the scripture. Long introduction, but that's my MO. Chapter 2, verse 1, we begin with prayer. Lord, we ask your blessing on the study of your word. And Lord, apart from you, we can do nothing. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you administer to all who are present, and even in the hearing of my voice, as this would go through the the gift you've given us of uh, media communications throughout the world. I, I pray, Lord, that you would anoint it by your spirit for your glory and that we'd be forever changed and obedient to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul writes, and I, brethren, when I came to you, and this is, this is he's leaving Athens, he's been at the Areopagus, he has given this unbelievable sermon. You can read it in the book of Acts. It's a fascinating sermon. I mean, you want to talk about philosophical and logical and breaking it down and on and on and on. He, he sees no effect or no benefit from it. So he comes to Corinth and he says, and I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring you to you the testimony of God, For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. He just comes to Corinth and he just, he sees this city. He sees the church and the feeble handful of folks that respond to the gospel. He sees what they're up against. He sees that the the ones that have come, their families are so screwed up, he doesn't even know where to begin to right this ship. And he is just absolutely perplexed. It's It's a daunting task. He's walked into a city that's never had a Christian radio station, never seen a a New Testament, never had any Christian music, uh, never had a really cool band and smoke and mirrors and all the cool stuff. He's never had any of that, nothing. He walks in and it is just inundated with pagan worship and everybody is dysfunctional. Now where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. We talk about the the room being dark. You like one candle and the the eyes turn to it. Fascinating thing, because he walks in and he says, I don't want to know anything among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. I'm not going to contend with your philosophers up on the area of Pegasus. I'm I'm coming in realizing the apostle Paul's not going to win this thing. Only Jesus is. I've been crucified with Christ. It's now, it's no longer I who live. It's now Christ who lives in me. And so this is his testimony of his very first visit to Corinth. And now he's writing him a letter reminding him of how he felt when he went there. So what he's saying is, look, the church is screwed up. When I left, you guys went right back into paganism and you're having some major issues. If the church is going to survive, it's only going to survive the same way I did when I came to the city. It's not going to be with persuasive speech and and this wisdom of man. It's going to be simply one thing, Jesus Christ and him crucified. How's that affect your family? How's it affect the city? How's it affect your business dealings? That's it. Verse six, however, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for they for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And then he quotes out of Isaiah, and he says, But it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of a man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. 
But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? And even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Paul walks into Corinth and he simply says, and and by the way, um, he was scared to death to go into Corinth. And God had given him a word in uh, Acts chapter 18. He said, uh, do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent for I am with you and no one will attack you to hurt you for I have many people in this city. And he said that to him to calm him because why is he saying, don't be afraid? He's afraid. Why, why do we not want to engage culture with the cross of Christ and the simplicity of the cross of Christ and speak with people? Is anyone awake? Fear of rejection, yeah. There's a person in the room who's not afraid. Afraid you lose your job. Hello? Afraid you lose a neighbor. Hello? And, and Paul's not going to be able to share with anyone without a consequence. And every city that he shared, every fear he th- considered came true. And now he's like walking into Corinth, just shaking, like, why do I have to go here? If this is the way you treat your friends, God, it's a wonder you have any, right? And the Lord speaks to him. He says, do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent for I'm with you and no one will attack you to hurt you for I have many people in the city. What is the one weapon that Satan has? Fear. fear. God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but a power of love and a sound mind. He paralyzes us by fear. Fear of rejection, fear of whatever. And we can just fill in the blank. Phobias. And if God is for me, who can be against me? No no weapon fashioned against me will stand. We're more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. What is the greatest thing that anyone can do to us? Well, they can take away all of our possessions. They can take read the book of Job. Yea, though he slay me, yet will I praise him. That man is invincible. A man who's not afraid is completely invincible. And really, what are they going to threaten you with if they kill you? Heaven, right? So Paul has come to this place where he's invincible in that sense. I mean, he, he struggles like all of us do, but he's starting to realize this. And he determines, as he says in verse 2 of the passage, he says, I am determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. I think that that needs to be from, and, and I, I believe it is, but I think it needs to be for the church capital C, not simply, you know, a handful of churches. And we're going to take a look at that tonight in a little bit, that the course of the ship for the church must be set with one thing. And that is simply verse two, for I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So let me, let me boil it down to simplicity. Let's say that you're my boss and we work at Costco and I'm brand new, and I know you've been having a hard time, and, and the Lord is telling me to go and share with you, but we're not allowed to talk about faith in the workplace, and my heart is pounding, right? And all of a sudden, what, what, why is my heart pounding? Because I'm going to lose my job, right? And, and, and I'm, I'm probably going to be ridiculed, and I might be rejected, right? I'll probably have to go before a firing committee or whatever they do. I don't know. Are you tracking me so far? And, and all of a sudden, the cross of Christ comes in. Boom. What's the cross of Christ? That's where Jesus died. Right? And why did he die? To take away the sins of the world. 
And he didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for the many. And his cross is my cross. And he died for you, just like he died for me. So I don't count my life dear to myself. I'm all about you now. So I'm not worried about my job. I'm not worried about relation, you know. I'm gonna go in there with the heart of Christ and I'm, I'm going to do what he tells me to. That's what the cross of Christ looks like, the crucified life. I'm dead, Christ is alive. It's not about my fears and my phobias. It's about transforming culture. Boom, boss has been hit. And the boss has now a change of heart. Cross of Christ comes into your life. How do I treat the employees now? I could see the fear when he came up. I want to open that up a little bit. And that fear is going to go even higher above you. Boom, cross of Christ. It's happening in China. The way they do business. We're not taking bribes anymore. Cross of Christ. That's a Christian. Cross of Christ. How do you do government? Well, somebody's got to step in. Cross of Christ. You go in and serve. Yeah, but they're mean in government. They're mean in Corinth. What, I don't, what, I'm sorry, what's your point? You're dead. You can't frighten a dead man. You can't even insult a dead man. Have you ever been to a funeral, seen an open casket, walked up to the corpse and said, you're ugly and your mother dresses you funny. <laughs> Nothing, you poke them. Are you tracking me? I don't want to know anything among you, save but for Jesus Christ and him crucified. That is revolutionary in a culture. Revolutionary in a culture. Paul's addressing himself, and I like what Alan Redpath says. He says, Paul's addressing himself to a situation which, humanly speaking, is far too big for him, a situation in which many a preacher has found himself ever since. And I just want to tell you something. I am now officially so busy, I don't have time for anything else. And I still have hundreds of emails I haven't looked at. I've got people who want appointments. I don't know where they're going to fit. And I've got everyone coming to me saying, you need to do this and we've got to accomplish this and we need to set this up and you're really good at this. Can you? And I'm looking and seeing a room full of, of people that not here, but I'm talking and I'm saying, I'm sorry, why am I supposed to do this? How did I end up here? Cross of Christ. And, and I'll give you cross of Christ. Tom, you have a thousand things you could do. Cross of Christ. You made phone calls. I'm here, right? Those weren't pleasant, were they? People told you to do things that were physically impossible <laughs> when you called them. <laughs> I did need that addition. Yeah. A city like Corinth is so full of human pride, and, and they have risen to this level of, of um, intellectual ascent. I, and whenever you're contending, I was sitting on the dais last night and one of the council members, I won't say to my right or my left, but one of the council members contending over uh, immigration and, and how, and, I'm, and it's the exact opposite of cross of Christ and the biblical approach to it. And, and I I'm not going to be offended. And one of the things that bothered me is I'm looking at some people who are responding to SB 54 and they're rude. They're in opposition to SB 54 and how dare they Claim the name of Christ and insult somebody who has an opposing view. Cross of Christ. Civility. There's no insult to a dead man. Yes? This is what changes a culture. It's the tenderness. And Corinth needed it. And they... they they had all their philosophers. They had everything. 
They would contemplate their belly button a thousand different ways and they could get you just confused. They went through logic and rhetoric. They had all kinds of ideas. But your faith shouldn't stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Look at verse five. It's real simple. simple, That your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Corinth was far too clever for them. And I have to tell you, in politics, the opposing party is far too clever for anything. I, 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 they have got it down to a machine. I remember I, was, I made hundreds of phone calls raising money. And I'd be excited because I'd get a couple of maximum donations and I'd check the funding and I'd look at my opponent and they had five times as much money as, as me that day. How do they do this? And I started seeing it. It's all the unions. Just, and they just made one call. They didn't, probably didn't even make a call. Just boop, money. And I'm calling people that have it that won't give it. And I'm having to explain to them. It's not my campaign. It's our, you, you understand this. But they're far more, they're far more savvy. The, the world can do the world better than we can. And Paul's concern for this young church, and, and I have to say this because I'm watching it. I saw an Instagram clip of somebody who wants to plant a church here. And are you tired of the old boring churches? And all churches are boring. And you got to come out because we've got vibrant, dynamic. And I, and I was just thinking, th- this is Paul's concern for this young church, this idea that the mission for all of us, and there's, why there's a 70% attrition rate in the ministry, preacher, servant, ambassador of the cross of Christ. This is, this is our, our calling as ministers and, and, and his outcome and the outcome of the church in Corinth is going to be a disaster. I mean, there's no smoke and mirrors or anything he can do. And this little band of believers that's holding together and imploding on itself, it, it, they're having to confront this great sinful city. And the reality is they, they can't even manage themselves, let alone affect a city for Christ. And Paul's saying, you really need to spend some time on your knees and you need to start applying the cross of Christ in your life. The world is in which we live in is far too clever and sinful, and, and we, we try to come up with gimmicks to try to compete with it, but we can't. We get sucked into this world of philosophy. And you watch the church, especially the Protestant church. We have, we've gone from you know, this, this idea of being word-centered to being philosophy-centered. And, and even our counseling has gone that way. And... I just don't know that the world feels the impact of sin. I don't know that the church feels the impact of of sin. And in addition, I I don't know that the world has ever seen real faith and felt the impact of faith. I remember when my dad would give me the hardest time about being a Christian. And, And now I know why my mother told me. She told me, she said, your dad treated you the way he did because if it was true, he would have to embrace it. And he wanted to make sure it was true by testing you. The world is looking for authenticity. Is there a faith you're willing to show that the cross of Christ is everything to you? Jesus Christ and him crucified. That they would see this impact of faith and it would change the culture in which we live. Um, and, and we're going to be tested. Um, God loves to put us in situations that seem unbelievably impossible. And you know what I love about this right now? I was talking to Bob Tyler, the attorney, as we're getting ready on Monday to go up and contend for SB 2943. Unbelievable vote. Um, Joey Nicolosi's going to lose his practice. I can think of a number of ministers that are going to be in jail or be fined. 
there is there is a possibility the Bible could be outlined, outlawed because it is a commerce um, a bill, and and if it's in if it deals with um, you know contending with same sex issues, then if you sell it, you you you're going to be facing this law. And we're going up to contend with it, and we're going to be a group of pastors going up and calling pastors with like, yeah, I don't really do that, man. Thanks, no. Yeah, I'm not really into that. Thanks, man, no. I'm okay, hey, what are, what are you doing this week? Well, we just don't like to get into controversial issues. Uh, last time I checked, Jesus said I didn't come to bring peace but a sword. I mean, the gospel's controversial. What are you talking about? Well, you know, it's just not, it's just not what, but we're contending. And, and I, let me read this letter to you. This is one that uh, Joey... Dr. Nicolosi wrote, he said, the bill bans any practice or treatment that seeks to change an individual's sexual orientation and goes on to say, the therapist cannot eliminate or reduce sexual or romantic attractions or feelings towards individuals of the same gender. Think about it. Think of the ramifications. Cannot reduce sexual or romantic attractions, feelings towards individuals of the same gender. So if a person has an unwanted same-sex attraction as a result of sexual abuse by an older person, as he pointed out, one-third of my entire practice has, then I cannot treat them? They're underage, and they've been molested, and they don't want same-sex attraction. One-third of his clientele, and he can't do this. After all, the American Psychological Association in its 2016 handbook has said that there are some cases in which same-sex attraction can likely be caused by sexual abuse. These individuals have the freedom to find therapy and support to help them achieve their desired goals, which is to decrease the confusing sexual thoughts and feelings which emerge as a result of these experiences. The bill says, I can only address situations that involve unlawful conduct. It makes no mention of being able to treat the problem. However, addressing and treating are two very different things. As anyone in the medical and psychological profession can tell you. True story, he says, a woman called me just earlier this week. I've discovered my 16-year-old son has a pornography addiction to anime characters. In case you don't know, anime characters are Japanese cartoon figures. Now, let's imagine this phone call were to be happening in this state, in this state if this legislation is passed. Here's how the conversation would go. Were the anime characters male or female? Because I cannot treat his addiction to... I, I, because I can only treat his addiction to the female characters, not the male ones. This woman would obviously and understandably be perplexed. So you can only treat his addiction to female cartoon characters, but not to the male. She would reiterate that this was an addiction the boy himself wanted to stop. He was getting lost in sexual fantasies towards characters who don't even exist. Under your legislation, I cannot help him resolve his pornographic addiction toward the male characters, but I can toward the female characters. This is the very violation of the Equal Protection Clause, the very clause that the LGBT activists herald as necessary part of a just society. But this very legislation seeks to compel the therapist to deny individual service based on their sexual orientation. This reveals the hypocrisy of the radical LGBT activists. They want to welcome people to homosexuality, but want to deny them any help to walk away from homosexuality if that's what they choose. Everyone has a right to walk away from sexual practices and experiences they don't want and to have support to do so. No one has the right to take that away from them. But there aren't any pulpits contending for this because this is politics. To have a little one stumble, it'd be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck cast in the deepest ocean. But we don't do politics. Why? Well, that's what Paul was addressing. The church at Corinth was really into world's wisdom. 
And, and I, I wanted to read to you a couple of things uh, that are fascinating to me about this, this idea of how the church is. It must be the message of our life, this idea of Jesus Christ and him crucified. The principle of our life must stand on the power of God. And Dr. Redpath writes, Paul had come to Corinth as he was himself in weakness and fear and much trembling. He had come to, the, to, to this, this uh, church and he was pressed in the spirit. And then that's when God himself encouraged him in in Acts 18. And he knew the strength of the Corinthian wisdom and the character of that city and the depths of its sin and the tremendous boast of its intellect. And he determined that he would not argue or debate with anybody, but present the crucified risen Lord in conviction of what Jesus had said was absolutely true. So Paul basically points out, uh, John 12, 32, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. This is Jesus speaking. So the man must get out of the picture, the personality of the preacher become obscured and the Lord be at the center of it all. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ the Lord and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. That's 2 Corinthians 4, 5. We'll cover it later. There must be a life willing to efface itself. You know why we're afraid? We don't want to lose our public standing. It's pride. We, we don't want to lose congregants because we measure our, our worth based on how many people are in the church. I'm so beyond that. I, I, I'm not in charge of people coming. I'm not in charge of them going. I mean, sometimes I am about them going, but I didn't intend to do it. And if they came for me, they're going to leave because of me. But if they came for Christ, they're going to do some wonderful things. Paul points out, and I I wanted to get to this. Let me find it. Um, Yeah, here it is. Yeah, here it is. Dr. Redpath. This was written in the 60s. You ready? Slowly but surely today, and I say this with a deep conviction of heart, God is driving the church into a corner from which there is no escape. There are various alternatives which we have tried in place of this message. I'm not speaking of the message that Christ died for our sins, but that of the message of a crucified life. The poor, cheap, noisy substitutes which the church has tried in place of that message are being exposed for the paltry, futile things that they really are. Along with all the so-called progress, there's the most alarming spiritual decline. Churches are closing at a rapid rate in this nation. Faith is diminishing. And we've never had more bells and whistles in the entire history of the church. The church has never had better machinery, neither has the church ever been so helplessly ineffective in meeting the problem of the day. God is trying to tell us that our currently popular version of Christianity, comfortable, humorous, superficially interesting, worldly wise, is exposed for the irreverent presentation that it is of the gospel of Christ. When revival comes... We shall find our lives revolutionized and our values turned upside down. When our confidence is in gimmicks, programs, schemes, and planning, and we have not learned to seek first the Lord and the power of God and the Holy Spirit and brokenness at Calvary, we inevitably go on being defeated and losing the battle. And then finally he writes, When Jesus Christ was asked for a sign to prove his authority, he replied by saying, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and there shall be no sign given to it but the sign of Jonah, who was in the belly of the whale for three days. And he just gives Jesus Christ in the tomb and resurrected. 
dare we say the message of Calvary is not good enough today. It goes straight to the bottom of your need and mine. It brushes aside the superficial. It exposes sin for what it really is. And when a man or a woman, fellow or girl, is prepared to accept the verdict of Calvary upon pride, self-sufficiency, and intellect, and come to trusting and resting entirely upon the cross, there falls upon his or her life the anointing of the Spirit of God. So when Paul writes in this passage of Scripture... He doesn't say to toss away wisdom. He says to seek the wisdom of God. Now, where does the wisdom of God come from? Uh, Somebody said it. Fear the Lord is the beginning of... And, And fear is reverential respect for God. And if he's for us, who and what can be against us? Let's try it again. If he is for us, who and what can be against us? What weapon fashioned against us will stand? None. No weapon. That's wisdom. So now you have no fear and you have wisdom. And that wisdom is there are laws that govern man. The laws of nature and nature's God. That we can see that we're created equal endowed by our creator with inalienable rights. We can see about consent. We can start to address these issues of our work ethic because that's the cross of Christ. When we do a job, we do it on time and we do it for the amount we agreed to. And we tell the truth and we do what we say we're gonna do. And we raise our children and we don't discipline in anger and a a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and settings of silver. Where does this come from? The wisdom of God. Why do we have it? Because we fear him so we read. Faith comes by hearing, hearing from the word of God. And so as we do every Sunday, 52 verses in 52 weeks, all of a sudden our lives start to be transformed by this. But I I wanted to show you this picture that he looks at the church and he simply says to them, I am determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling and my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words and human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. God doesn't want us to throw away wisdom. He wants it to be godly wisdom. Okay? And godly wisdom is to look at the world in its entirety. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, Let us make man in our image, Elohim, singular plurality, unified diversity, all the diverse segments of study, unified for one purpose, what? Glorifying God. Now all of a sudden, mankind understands thinking and doing virtues, and they realize that they're to apply morality, and the laws are the wise restraints that make men free. We restrain ourselves towards evil to apply, to pursue good, and we obtain excellence. We don't look at freedom as throwing off constraint and doing as we please. We apply God's principles in order to obtain a higher level of freedom. Remember, Peyton Manning, football player, he, enjoys, he enjoyed football at a higher level than I'll ever be able to enjoy it because while he was applying restraint, when I was sitting on the sofa eating a bowl of potato chips and watching football with a Coke in my hands, he had been out practicing. He has freedom to enjoy football at a level I'll never have the privilege to enjoy. You want to enjoy a higher Christian life? Apply some restraint. Cross of Christ. I am dead to myself. I'm alive to Christ. And all of a sudden, the culture takes on shape. Look at that family. I want what they have. Apply the cross of Christ. 
I don't want to know anything among you but Jesus Christ and him crucified. What happens in a world where Christ is crucified? You go into a, you go into a city like Corinth and you turn it right side up and all of a sudden Europe is reached with, with the gospel and there's an absolute transformation in government and everything about the world. I want to show you a picture of someone similar, um, and this is one of this is how the Lord called me, and and this is interesting. I looked at the landscape in California. I looked at myself as a pastor. I went through everything that everyone goes through, and I've got about twenty minutes, and I'm going to share this with you. It's it's just a simple testimony of how God brought me to this place. I got to this church in 2001. Uh, young pastor, the idea is, what is a successful pastor? I looked around me, well, there's Calvary Community. Successful pastor is buildings, budgets, and baptisms. Let's make this thing as big as possible. And now I'm gonna, I'm, I was a competitor. I swam. I'm looking and, and evaluating the field. I got that guy beat. I'm a better teacher than him. I'm funnier than he is. Uh, I'm a better expositor of scripture than they are. I'm better looking than they are. And I went through the whole thing and I was evaluating myself and I'm gonna beat them all. And so we start competing and in that competition, what I loved about being in California is the culture was imploding quicker than we could assimilate these folks that had just done this. And so the bigger churches had the bells and the whistles and the cool bands. Well, if we can get a band in there and, and we can get a really vibrant speaker like we did when I was a youth minister and we do these big conferences, then we'll get people in. But if we do a really rockin' Easter service or a really rockin' Christmas service, we'll get people in. And, okay. And then you get what? Okay, you filled a three services. and want bigger building? Okay. And what God started to do is the, the more people that came to the church, the more exhausted and tired of, the pro, of, of this process I became. I'm looking at people going, these people don't just fill seats. They all have issues. And they want something from me. They're not just giving and expecting nothing in return, and they're draining. They suck the life out of you. I'm, I'm just telling you what I went through. It's not true. But this is, this is the mindset, and it gets bigger, and you're daunting. And then what do you do? You isolate yourself, and the, the pastor can only be seen on a screen. And I've got my own entrance and my own exit, and I, you know, no one ever sees me, and I shop at a different store, and I live out of the city, and I... And, and we got this, and we, we're going to broadcast to different locations. And, and I watched pastors. I saw Francis Chan. He finally got to a place where he said, this is insane. Uh, I, I watched um, uh, uh, Carpinteria, um, Britt Brit Merrick. His daughter died. He just, that was it. I'm done. I can't handle this anymore. And we rose to this level of insanity, and I watched it. In the meantime, I thought, well, how do you avoid it? So I gave half the church away, and I just left. Here you go. You can have it. I thought, well, that's kind of cool. We'll plant a church on every corner. Well, that did take root very well. But what I did realize is in the process of moving, anyone who came had already pioneered. It was kind of like just the people who came were like, well, we did this. What's the next crazy move? And I started to realize, what effect is a culture having? You've heard me do this. Calvary Chapel, 1967, right? Preaching the gospel, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. 1,700 Calvary Chapels in the world. 51 years preaching the gospel, 10,000% growth, conversion growth, not transfer growth, but apolitical. Primarily in California, 350 Calvary chapels south of Van Nuys. What have we done for the state? Highest gas tax, sales tax, income tax, corporate tax. Our GDP has gone from fifth to ninth. We are the authors of no-fault divorce, which devastated marriage in America. We're the authors of transgender bathroom bills, and we lead the nation in abortion. Where's the power of the gospel? I mean, I, the, the depression that hit. It was like being on the area of Pegasus and thinking, wow, what a sermon. 
and realizing I have made zero effect in this city. Everything I vote for would lose. Christians were moving out. The state was imploding. And I'm thinking, this gospel's pathetic. It has no backbone. And then one day, crazy idea, let's run for office. No idea what to do in that one. And now we're watching the culture change. And I have to tell you, I could have never have come up with this idea. And as we're going up to Sacramento and we're meeting with pastors across the country, this prototype's been created. Not by any wisdom of myself. Trust me, I didn't want to be a city councilman. I didn't want to be a state assemblyman. And we won by 52 votes. That was just, that was hilarious. It's like God saying, eh, I'll give it to him. And look at what's transpired. You get to sit at a dinner with somebody you would never have a conversation with. You have a chance to just completely present the Lord. In a way that isn't just raise your hand, in a way that affirms what it is they've been looking for all along. Purpose and meaning and direction in life. And as we've gone through this, I think that in America, the reason why the church is declining is because we're not desperate for them. And what's so exciting to me, and Bob Tyler was saying this about uh, AB 2943, he hopes it passes. I want the church to be in such a tight corner we can't get out of it. And the only people that are going to stay in California are the ones that have faith. Because every gimmick we've tried has been fruitless. And you know what's fun about revival? It's all about God. And we become so desperate that we don't want to know anything but Jesus Christ and him crucified in our lives and in that of the community. I'm not afraid anymore. I'm not intimidated anymore. I have love for my enemies. They're not enemies, they're opportunities. He's changed my heart. He's changed my life, right? Yes? Impossible odds. This is what the Lord showed me. I was reading through 2 Samuel 23, 11. Had no idea what this passage. I'm just looking at David's mighty men. I came across this and it was just like this. God highlighted it to me. This third guy, his name was Shema. He was the son of Aggie the Herorite. The Philistines were gathered into a troop where there was a plot of ground full of lentils and the people fled from the Philistines. But he took his stand in the midst of the plot, defended it, and struck the Philistines, and the Lord brought about a great victory. I read that, and I meditated on it, my morning devotion. I said, Lord, why did you put this guy in a bean field? Lentils are the worthless crop in Israel. Why'd you put him in a bean patch? Because it's worthless. Why did you tell him to defend it? Because I wanted it. And I thought, you know, Lord, there are times where I feel like What I'm doing is worthless. It is, Rob, apart from me. He couldn't have stood against the Philistines, neither can you. And really, it's worthless unless I make it valuable. Do you trust me? It's your bean patch. What do you want? You want to stand and defend it? And I looked around. I thought, yeah, Lord, I like this idea of a bean patch. And and if you wonder about a bean patch, I mean, lentils, they're not necessarily a bean patch, but a jar of them looks like a jar of beans, doesn't it? And then the Lord, I love this. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by ear, nor has the eye seen any God beside you who acts for the one who waits for him. You meet him who rejoices and does righteousness, who remembers you in your ways. You are indeed angry, for we have sinned. In these ways we continue, and we need to be saved. This is the passage that the Lord had 
had pointed out in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And this is the one that tied in for me. And I love it. We, we, we haven't even seen what God's going to do. But he wants it for the people who wait upon him. And, and when I saw these statistics, and you've seen them, but we need to refresh ourselves. The remainder of the church believes that the Bible is accurate in all of the principles it teaches. Would you all agree with that? Did Jesus live a sinless life on earth? Absolute moral truth exists? Okay, so all these things you can see. He's still the rule, the, he still rules the universe today. These are some of the most basic teachings of the Bible, but Barna found that 70% of the churches rejected such elemental Christian tenets. The 100,000 or so churches that remain that still embrace these biblical teachings won't preach what the Bible says about the issues out of fear of what backlash they may face. Over 90% of theologically conservative pastors agree that the Bible addresses specific issues facing Christians today, such as abortion, same-sex marriage, gambling, immigration, and others. But on the bad side, only 10% of the pastors are willing to address these issues. They're concerned about being seen as political, not wanting to risk the loss of numbers of people or donations, and are concerned about the statutes uh, of the church's nonprofit designation. Conservative churches have biblical mandate to teach these things, but are choosing to ignore the opportunity in favor of remaining safe. Safe. Safe means free from fear. These are all the gimmicks. And listen, the world does it better than we do. Why are we afraid if all we want to know is Jesus Christ and him crucified? That takes away fear. It, it, it transforms the city of Corinth. On the good side, at least 70% of the congregants in these theologically conservative churches say there are 14 different topics they want their pastors to address. So I have to commend all of you because you're more excited about it than I am. Most of the time, I'm like, oh, I don't know. This one's going to be tough. You guys are like, do it again. Yep. Abortion. 91% of the people want to talk about abortion. Religious persecution, 85%. Poverty, personal church, government roles, cultural restoration, sexual identity, same-sex marriage, Israel, Christian heritage of America, the proper role of government, bioethics, self-governance, the church and politics, Islam, the media, senior citizens, end-of-life issues, as we joked earlier, that's becoming more popular as we get older. But you look at this. This is what the congregation wants to know about. How do I change my city? Pastor, what does the cross of Christ look like? How do I apply this? How are you civil in a meeting? How does the government work? What is the best form of government in accordance with the scriptures? How should people govern themselves? What does immigration look like with the cross of Christ? How does a family work with the cross of Christ? See? On the bad side, despite the extremely high desire of parishioners to hear about these issues from the pulpit, only 6% of pastors address as many as six topics, and only half even address two easiest ones, abortion, same-sex marriage, and the number of pastors addressing issues, such topics has fallen by half since 2014. On the good side, pastors recognize the need to track results to see if what they're doing is working, but on the bad side, when theologically conservative pastors were asked about how they determined the success of their churches, the top five measurements were buildings, budgets, and baptisms. Worship service attendance, dollars donated, number of programs offered, number of staff people hired, square footage of the facility. I have read the letter to the churches, the entire book of Revelation, and nowhere does God say that that is a successful church. Nowhere. None of those are barometers are important to the Lord. 
The classic line used by many pastors for not addressing biblical issues such as inborn life, man, woman, marriage, politics, etc. is, I just preach Jesus. I just preach the gospel. The truncated gospel, the myopic gospel, this gospel. Not what does the cross of Christ look like in every area of society. Why do they do it? Fear. Fear of what? Buildings, budgets, and baptisms dwindling. Oh my. The implication is that if you preach the biblical truth that apply to daily personal national life, then you are not preaching Jesus. I preach Jesus every time I get here and every opportunity I get when I'm not even behind this. To preach Jesus is fine, but also preach what he preached, the application of biblical truth, the cross of Christ and what it does to every aspect of life, including national life. So back to what God gave me. Not only did you give me 2 Samuel 23, 11, Shema, and verse 12, but then he gave me this one. It was Jeremiah 29, uh, verse 11, that says, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, to give you hope in the future, Right? Right? But they're getting ready to be sent into 200 years in exile into Babylon. That is not a comforting verse. Hey, you're going to be exiled. We're all exiled here in California, right? This isn't the state I remember growing up in. Anyone? They've hijacked it. I don't recognize it anymore. And what does God say? What do you do while you're in exile? What he did first is he carried into exile to Babylon the remnant who escaped from the sword and they became servants to him and the sons until the kingdom of Persia came to power. The land enjoyed its Sabbath rest all the time as desolation it rested until the seven, 70 years were completed in the fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, the king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any one of his people among you, may, uh, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. You know what's cool about Cyrus? Pagan king. And you know what people call Donald Trump? The Cyrus candidate. Moving the capital to Jerusalem, giving religious liberty, rolling... I mean, uh, we don't deserve it. The church doesn't want to vote for him. He's immoral. I love that about the church. I can't vote for an immoral man. Oh, take Samson and Rahab out of the hall of faith. By the way, we're not voting for pastor-in-chief. Just wanted you to know that's commander-in-chief. Jeremiah 29, verses 5 and 6. This is what the Lord said when I send you into exile. He said, build houses, dwell in them, plant gardens, eat their fruit, take wives, beget sons and daughters, take wives for your sons, give your daughters to husbands so that they may bear sons and daughters, that you may be increased there, not diminished, and seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for it, for in its peace you will have peace. I want you to affect a Babylonian city and I want you to build families and I want you to have the building block of society and I want houses there and I I want you to venture into crops and distribution and, and I want them to see what a marriage looks like and I want you to pray for that city while you're in exile. Quit whining, stay in the city and, and transform it. Along comes a guy like Cyrus and then you can get to go home. 
And I, I read all that and I thought, okay, Lord, this is our bean patch. We're in exile. Let's build houses, be given in marriage, plant vineyards, pray for the peace of the city, for in his peace you'll have peace. Do you know what tomorrow is at 6 o'clock? It's a national day of prayer. Where? City Hall. Great place. The heart of the city. And we have been doing it for the 18 years, or 17 years I've been the pastor. It doesn't matter how many times we ask. We, why can't we fill that place? We have the chance to intercede on behalf of our civic leaders in this city. And we have a commandment to do it. Pray for kings and those in authority with quiet and peaceable lives and all godliness and reverence. We have a chance to do it. This is what changed Corinth. This is what affected Babylon. This is what will affect Thousand Oaks, Kampala, right? Paphos. We can go on and on with all the cities that are represented. But I'll tell you what won't affect it. If you want to use your earthly wisdom and go, well, the Constitution says, and then such a prophecy, and then the thing in the route, and then boo, oh, oh, stop it. The cross of Christ is civil and kind and thoughtful. Doesn't keep a record of wrongs. A word fitly spoken, apples of gold and settings of silver, a gentle word, answer turns away wrath. That's the cross of Christ in politics. You need to demand it from the dais. No, no, I don't. There's a city to run. That's one issue. You may want your pound of flesh and prove yourself successful, but there's lives to be touched. I've got relationships I'm building. And do you realize that communication, those, the decision to make that happened by a friendship? For SB 54, it was a friendship. In spite of the vitriol. And my, my encouragement to all of us, what does a cross of Christ look like in every mountain of cultural influence? That's the only way Corinth is going to be turned right side up. And if that church can do it, anyone can do it. Paul gave the very simple formula. I don't want to know anything among you save but Jesus, for Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's it. Doesn't mean you abandon wisdom. It means you apply it. The whole council.